0: The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Express VPN for its continued support of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Revoke Big Tech's Right to Your Data. Secure your internet with a VPN that I trust for online protection. And you can get three months free when you use my link. Just go to expressvpn.com/gold right now to learn more. A relatively quiet day in the market today, but some of the movements of note: the price of oil continues to creep higher, making a new post-COVID high today. We were up better than one dollar a barrel. I think we closed just under 56, 55, 80-ish. We did trade above 56. The high I saw was 56.33. And that, again, is the high print for the move. We are making a beeline towards 60. We may have a bit of resistance up there, but I think people are going to be very surprised at the speed with which oil moves from 60 to 100. I'm not even sure that we're going to stop at $80 a barrel for long, but that is going to really... Uh, be a big factor, I think, in the inflation outlook. Looking also at the bond yields, they continue to creep higher, getting close again to the post-COVID highs as well in bond yields. The yield on the 10-year back above 1.13, getting close to the highest we've been post-COVID. The high I think we had was about 1.187. So not quite to 1.2 yet, but we are creeping higher and the yield on the 30 year now back above 1.9. We're at 1.912 on the close and the highest we've been on the 30 year since COVID is 1.915. So almost a new high in the yield on the 30 year. So the spreads widening a bit as more inflation is built in to the yield curve. U.S. dollar not really doing much, kind of holding steady around the 91 level. And I think at some point we're gonna see the dollar roll over. The chart looks pretty bad for the dollar. I think we're just consolidating before the next move lower. That's what's probably keeping a lid on the price of gold. And by the way, we gave back the entire rally in gold and in particular in silver on Tuesday that we had on Monday. I spoke about the big run up. In fact, intraday, I think silver was up around two and a half dollars at its peak before closing the day at a, up about a buck and a half. Well, yesterday it gave back all of those gains and then some The silver stocks, which were up 20, 30 percent on Monday were down by similar percentages, maybe not quite as much, but again, huge declines on Tuesday. I think there was a lot of second thoughts when it comes to the move into silver by the Wall Street bets crowd on Reddit. And again, as I mentioned, there were a lot of people on the chat room saying, don't buy silver. It's a trick. We're not gonna be able to squeeze it. Maybe there's some other hedge funds that are behind it that are trying to get us to pump up silver so they can dump into our pump. And so a lot of stuff reversed. I also think that some of the people who bought on the open on Monday, and as I said, you had a lot of these orders that were building up over the weekend and they all rushed in on the open. And so the market gapped up. I think a lot of those same people, put in sell orders to sell the open on Tuesday. And so the market gapped down. And so there were some losses there. I think yesterday represented a good buying opportunity. That pullback, I think, was a good entry point. So if you recall, when I talked about the rally on Monday, I was a bit concerned that we would have a pullback. We got close to $30, which I thought represented resistance. And we moved too far too fast just based on this rush of new buying which in the scheme of things really wasn't going to be enough to sustain the up move in silver unless there was broader participation uh, by institutions or other global investors, which is coming eventually. But I think- what they did over the last couple of days is they took advantage of a lot of these smaller investors who are not that market savvy and they rushed to buy and they bit up the price and then some of them might have had a change of heart and decided to get out and they really took those guys to the cleaners and I think some of the bigger investors were selling on Monday, taking advantage of these oversized moves and I think they either... Started to get back into the market yesterday, or they will be getting back into the market because I think people that did have uh, gold and silver stocks to sell into that rally, I don't think they want to give up on those positions. I just think they took advantage of the opportunity for a short term trade to maybe sell some stocks and then buy them back a bit cheaper and try to enhance their return. And in fact, it wasn't just gold and silver that really pulled back on Tuesday. It was all of the heavily shorted stocks that were being bought up by the Reddit Raiders. They all got clobbered on Tuesday, in particular GameStop and AMC. I mean, these stocks had huge moves. In fact, GameStop closed on Monday at $225 a share. It opened on Tuesday, yesterday, at about 140. That was a huge gap down. And I think there was so much selling that there were some trading halts during the day. The market actually bottomed out for the day all the way down at $74.22. Remember, we got as high as 500 and change in the pre-market on January 28th. I think the high print Uh, during market hours, normal hours was 483. But we dropped very quickly from 500 down below 100 down to 74.22. Now today we bounced back. The low today was 85 and a quarter and we closed at 92.41, which was up a couple of bucks, maybe 2.7%. So a small move, but I think it was a weak close on this stock and all these stocks. And to me, it seems like, the top is in, right? I don't think we're going to make a new high in any of these stocks. Uh, The odds are that the peak of this mania has already been seen. And the question is now, how quickly is this bubble going to deflate? I have a feeling that it is going to be pretty quick. I don't think this is going to be a bubble that lasts for years and years and years like the one that we have in Bitcoin. I think this is going to be short and sweet or actually not so sweet if you're on the losing end of this transaction. The concern is going to be how the regulators are then going to react to this. And of course, a lot of people are blaming the sell-off on the hedge funds. You know, I watched one of these uh, uh, videos from Dave Portnoy uh, talking about how the people in the hedge funds and at Robinhood, they ought to go to jail for what they did, that somehow it was their um, shutting down the buy orders at Robinhood. That's why the market went down, because they stopped all the buying. Look, at at most, all they did was accelerate the collapse, maybe by a day or two. The buying would have exhausted itself eventually anyway. There's a limit to how much money these speculators have, and there's also a limit to the number of shorts that are going to be covering, because those are the only buyers, right? Speculators who don't know what they're doing and who are trying to squeeze the shorts, and the shorts who are crying uncle and who are getting out. But beyond that, there are no real investors that were looking to buy those stocks at those prices. In fact, as I mentioned on an earlier podcast, and now I'm finding out a lot of pensions Uh, And big investors were taking advantage of this gift from the trading gods and they were selling. In fact, in in AMC, there are a lot of bondholders that were going to get screwed that had convertible bonds that were actually able to get out of jail. They were able to convert their bonds into stock and then sell the stock. So these were shares that didn't even exist, but the bondholders were able to get them through a conversion and then immediately take those shares and dump them on the market and actually get made whole which they probably weren't going to do with their bonds if the company went bankrupt or needed to restructure, but they were actually able to make money uh, by converting and selling into the mania thanks to the the short squeezers. But it's not that Wall Street and the hedge funds and Robinhood or other broker dealers are the reason that the stocks crashed. The stocks were going to crash anyway. The reason they crashed is because they went up. I mean, they never should have gone up. Right, what goes up must come down. Right, it's you know those are the laws of physics. But if you bid up a stock on sheer speculative buying and it goes to a valuation that is completely unsustainable by the fundamentals, it's going to come crashing down. It's only a question of when. So uh, Robinhood didn't cause the crash. They may have accelerated it by hours or days. I doubt it was weeks. But if anything. Robinhood actually did a favor to all the people who were thinking about buying a GameStop or AMC or any of these stocks and who weren't able to do it because had they bought, they just would have lost money. It's not like the stocks would have kept going up if they would have allowed the buys. They wouldn't have. They might've gone up a little bit more, but then they would have come crashing down even more. And so the losses would have been bigger. But now people who don't understand the markets are blaming uh, Robin Hood and, and the hedge funds in Wall Street. And I think this is also giving politicians, maybe like AOC, uh, this is more grist for their mill to try to exploit this situation to get more regulation on Wall Street, on brokerage firms and the banks. And of course, you know, there's going to be all these losses. Individual investors are going to lose money. And whenever people lose money, there's always a politician there looking to blame capitalism And who thinks that the solution to these losses is more government regulation, uh, more oversight, even though we have plenty of that already and it didn't stop the losses. And as I've explained on previous podcasts, it's because we have so much government involvement that um, retail investors are getting screwed to the degree that they are because they're not getting the professional help that might uh, prevent this from happening because that help has been legislated out of existence because they've been priced out of the market because none of the broker dealers out there can afford to deal with them because the costs are much higher than anything that they can charge in fees or commissions on legitimate uh, you know investment activity. Also on Monday, as these heavily storted stocks were finally crashing back down to earth, we had a reversal in the stock market, and we saw this overall stock market rise rather sharply, and maybe that was because the selling pressure on those stocks had abated because the shorts were no longer covering in those stocks, so they no longer had to sell uh, their their longs in order to meet those margin calls. So we had a pretty big rally. But the rally overseas really continues, especially in these emerging markets, which I think are going to be the the rising stars, not only of the year, but of the decade as we see a mass migration out of the U.S. dollar and into overseas equities. You know, the dollar has been hanging over uh, the emerging markets like, like a sword of Damocles because the strong dollar has created all sorts of problems for emerging market economies and companies in those countries that have U.S. dollar denominated debt. Uh, but as the dollar goes down, there is going to be a massive relief. And what I think is going to be different about how the emerging markets react to the weakening dollar this time, and the way they reacted back in 2010, 2011, when you know we were really doing QE1, printing all this money for the first time, the dollar was tanking. A lot of these emerging economies got worried. Because the Chinese were still working hard to maintain the peg relationship between the yuan and the dollar. And so as all of these emerging market currencies were rising in relation to the dollar, they were also rising in relation to the yuan, which was falling with the dollar. And a lot of these countries were worried that this was going to put them at a competitive disadvantage uh, in their exports to the United States, that China was going to somehow outcompete them because their products would be lower price, And so that's when we had the currency war. That's when we had all these foreign governments trying to race to the bottom so that they wouldn't you know, lose out to China. And I thought that was a misguided policy. And in fact, I was right. And it did come back to bite those economies. But that's not going to happen this time. I've been saying for a while, there will be no currency World War II. Because this time around, I think China is going to be content to allow the U.S. dollar to fall and their own currency, the yuan, to rise. And if the yuan is rising along with all the other currencies, then those countries are not going to worry about losing any kind of competitive advantage to China. And so the whole world is simply going to allow the dollar to sink. And that is going to be a massive uh, tailwind for the emerging markets, not only their economies, but their stocks. And a lot of money is going to be flowing out of the S&P 500, where a lot of money fled. A lot of people who live in those emerging economies, because their currencies were weak, decided to invest in the U.S. market to get a rising dollar as a tailwind. Well, when a falling dollar becomes a headwind for those portfolios, they're going to get out. Uh, so we're seeing some strength in those markets. And I think that's going to continue and accelerate when we get the, uh, the next leg down in the U.S. dollar. We also got some economic data that came out today. We got some ISM service index and PMI numbers that both came out a little bit stronger uh, than had been anticipated. I think the more significant report that people were looking at was the ADP employment report for the month of January. You know, this is a jobs week. This is going to be the first week in February. And so that means that we get the non-farm payroll report on Friday. So that's the big number. But the preliminary number, the ADP private report, came out today. And they actually upwardly revised the prior month. They initially reported 123,000 jobs were lost. Remember, there was a negative print in December. And so they revised that upward to a lower negative, a loss of just 78,000 jobs. And the consensus was for 50,000 jobs created in January. And instead, according to ADP, we created 174,000 jobs. Now, there was a big uh, range. The forecast was a low of minus 85,000 to a high of 285,000. So, you know, kind of somewhere in the middle is where we ended up, although it was above the consensus. We'll see what the non farm payroll report is on. Uh, Friday, but I don't think that those numbers are really going to move the market very much. I think everybody pretty much knows that it doesn't even matter what the employment situation is at this point. The Fed is going to stay at zero. The Fed is going to keep on printing money. At one point, people looked at these job numbers for some type of key as to what the Fed was going to do. And you know, if the if the number was strong, well, maybe the Fed would hike, or you know, it would affect policy. But it has no effect. Policy is on autopilot. It doesn't really matter what the numbers are. We all know what the Fed is going to do. So, I mean, they really don't even have any significance. You know, we're going to get the trade deficit also on Friday talking about an insignificant number, it's only insignificant in the fact that nobody cares about it and nobody reports on it. I mean, I'm one of the only people that does talk about it. I think it is very significant. One of these days, the markets will understand the significance. But what I think might be significant about it is it is going to be the last trade deficit for a full month under the Trump presidency. This is the December deficit. Uh, Donald Trump left office mid-January. So January is not really the last trade deficit under Trump because it's half Trump and and half uh, Biden. But the December 2020 is the last full month of the Trump term. And since Donald Trump ran... Uh, on a platform of making America great again by reducing our trade deficits, we are looking at an enormous trade deficit. I don't think it'll be a record high, pretty close to it. We'll see. The consensus is for a slight improvement from the 68.1 billion that we got last month. They're looking for 65.8 billion. We'll see if we could take out 70 billion or maybe set a new record. That might be particularly ironic if the last Um, full monthly trade deficit of the Trump presidency ends up being an all-time record high trade deficit, meaning the opposite of what Trump promised is what he would have delivered when it comes to trade. By the way, before I forget, I want to mention that I am scheduled to be on the Tucker Carlson show tomorrow. It's a live show. And as far as I know, I'm still going to be on. I mean, they they booked me and they scheduled me, but you never know with these kind of shows. I mean, they have a tendency to book you and then something else comes up uh, and they end up canceling. I mean, I was on the Tucker Carlson show or supposed to be on about a year ago, if you recall, and I was traveling at the time. So obviously it was before COVID, but because I was traveling, I wasn't going to be able to do the live show. So they decided to tape the segment and then they were going to run it uh, when they ran the actual show. So I taped it the day before or two days before or something like that. So they had it, but then they never ran it. I guess I don't know what happened that caused them to change their mind. The topic was the Federal Reserve and the money printing and all that. And I thought it was a very, very good segment. Pretty much Tucker and I were agreeing on pretty much everything that we discussed. In fact, I really liked Tucker Carlson. I mean, I watched that show uh, quite a bit, I think. Personally, he's one of the best people out there, uh, and he's a very important voice that really needs to be heard on the mainstream. He's really calling out a lot of this BS that's going on, and I think his voice is going to be particularly important during the Biden uh, presidency, far more so than it was when Trump was president. So I think he's particularly important uh, a person that's out there. I don't think he gets enough credit, and he takes a lot of heat. He takes some very unpopular positions and he's willing to stand up for himself and and he doesn't bow down uh, to the pressure from the politically correct mob on the left. So I really do hope that I am on the show and I don't get canceled. Uh, So if, and I will tweet this out too. So, you know, if, watch my Twitter because I probably won't tweet out if I get canceled, but I will tweet out if they confirm that I'm on and I haven't been canceled. So if you don't want to watch it, I mean you should watch it anyway, whether I'm on or not. You know why not tune in and and watch the Tucker Carlson show and maybe I'll be on and maybe I won't, but I will tweet it out. So if you, if you only want to watch it, if you think I'm going to be on, then watch out for my Twitter. You no, know, if you are not following me on Twitter, this is a reason to go ahead and do it. In fact, I noticed that I just passed three hundred and forty-five thousand Twitter followers. So. Uh, my army is growing here, so if you're not part of it, uh, you should enlist and, and become part of, uh, of the army here and follow me on Twitter. My YouTube audience is really growing as well. I now have over 430,000 YouTube subscribers, so if you're not among them, subscribe. I mean, help me now. Uh, You know, I can see 500,000. I'm, you know, closing in on a half a million YouTube subscribers. So that would be great. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get there sometime in 2021. But it'd be great if I can get there in the first half of 2021. So that would take another 70,000 subscribers from here. So uh, subscribe to that, you know, go go on all of my uh, social media platforms, you know, friend me on Facebook. Instagram, though, is the one I really need to push because that's the one I came late to the Instagram party, right? Because I didn't even start on Instagram until last year. And I'm not even at 70,000 followers. I'm at 69,800 and change. So maybe as a result of this podcast. I can get over 70,000. I'd really like to get to 100,000 to get at least out of the, you know, the five digits and get to get to a six digit count on Instagram. So obviously, if I've got 430,000 YouTube subscribers and 345,000 Twitter followers, a lot of these guys are not on Instagram. Now, maybe a lot of these guys think they're too old for Instagram. But you know what? Even if you are just, you know, follow me. You know, there's some interesting stuff that I'm putting out on Instagram that's not on Twitter, that's not on YouTube or Facebook. So, you know, if you're not following me, just do it, you know, and help me get my numbers up because I think the higher my numbers are, I can attract some more young people because that's where the young people are. They're on Instagram you know, and so I need to reach those people. I need to unscramble their brains, you know, because they're going to U.S. uh, universities or, you know, elementary school, high school, whatever, and they're being indoctrinated into socialism by a bunch of socialist teachers. Now, of course, the indoctrination is happening online rather than in an actual classroom. But then they're constantly bombarded with socialist propaganda uh, from the government, from the media. And so I'm this one voice. So I'm not the only voice, but I'm a voice. And I think I'm a particularly good voice. because I think, I think I do a good job of explaining things to people in language that really they can understand and using analogies that, that people get. So I really need to increase my appeal among young people. And I can do that on Instagram. So follow me on Instagram. Just make a point of it and try to get other people to do it. Today's episode is sponsored by Nerd Wallet Smart Money Podcast. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Oh, and by the way, don't forget about Shift Clips. You know, I barely have anybody on Shift Clips on YouTube. I don't even have 7,000 subscribers yet. I have 6,300 uh, 300- and 30 subscribers. I mean, that's hardly anything. I mean, I can't believe I launched a YouTube channel and that's all I got. And I've actually talked about it a couple of times on on my podcast and I'm not really getting a lot of traction. So, you know, I'm getting a lot of people listening to my podcast between Shift Radio and YouTube you know, there's 150, 200,000 people listening to every podcast. So every one of you go over and subscribe to Shift Clips. You know, you got to watch these videos uh, when I put them out. So I really expect to see a lot more. I mean, at least get me over 10,000 here. Give me a little help uh, to make this channel look like it's something. I mean, you know, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of little channels out there that got more subscribers than, than this one. So uh, make that's, let's make that a point. You know, when I do my podcast, I'll probably do another one on Friday because we're going to get the jobs report. And I've been doing a lot of these podcasts on Friday. So hopefully when I do Friday's podcast, I can at least see that thing uh, in the uh, over 10,000 subscribers. Look, it doesn't matter what your politics are or who you voted for. Everyone has the right to express themselves freely. Unfortunately, the big tech monopolies have instead opted for silencing tactics and censorship. The best way to fight back is to take control of your own internet. And I use ExpressVPN. In fact, as a matter of fact, when I don't have the ExpressVPN activated, I actually notice how much content I'm not even able to see, you know, I go and I read a lot of news stories and a lot of times those news stories have videos associated with them. And because I'm in Puerto Rico, what it says on the video is not available in your region. And then I realize, oh, I forgot to fire up my ExpressVPN. And the minute I click that on and it reroutes me to Miami, all of a sudden I can see that video. So in addition to keeping my data private, which is the main reason I'm using it, The bonus is that I get access to all sorts of content that I otherwise would not be able to see, but for that VPN. When you're using the ExpressVPN app on your computer or your cell phone, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and to sell to advertisers. And because they don't know where you're coming from, you can get access to content that otherwise you might have been prohibited Uh, from enjoying. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers or cyber criminals. What I like most is how easy it is to use. It just takes one click to protect all your devices. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET and Wired. So revoke big tech's right to use your data. Secure your internet with the VPN I trust for my online protection. Visit expressvpn.com gold. That's expressvpn.com gold to get three extra months free with my exclusive link. Again, go to expressvpn.com gold right now to learn more. Neil Kashkari was out giving a speech today. In fact, he was talking yesterday as well. so this guy's really been running his mouth and of course he is one of the biggest doves. Maybe maybe wait a minute, he is the biggest dove. He is Uber Dove over at the Federal Reserve. He wants to print pretty much as much money as possible. Maybe he's the closest thing to an MMTer tier that we have at the Fed, which is why I think that maybe you know if Powell isn't reappointed, Cascarry's probably got the inside track. To becoming the next chairman of the Federal Reserve, because he's the guy that wants to print the most money, which is great when you have governments that want to run the biggest deficits. But I wanted to point out a couple of the things that Kashkari said that I thought were, you know, particularly ridiculous. I mean, one of the things that he said, you know, in answer to a question about, you know, the deficits and whether or not they were a concern. Of course, you know, he's not concerned at all. Why should he worry about deficits? But one of the reasons that he said that there was nothing to worry about is he said that, well, you know, you have a lot of people who are actually better off from the pandemic. They're working from home, but, you know, they're not going out and spending a lot of money on travel or things like that, and uh, so... They have a lot of extra savings, you know, money they're not spending because they're staying at home and they're not incurring a lot of the costs that they would normally incur, commuting back and forth to work and eating in restaurants and stuff like that. So they're saving all this money. And so that money is being loaned to the U.S. government. That is all this extra savings that a lot of Americans have. They're able to loan this money to the government. And now the government is able to tap into that savings And loan that to the people who need the money because, you know, they were hurt by COVID because they lost their jobs. And for some reason, they're not getting the unemployment benefits. I'm not really sure who these people are uh, because they're giving out money like crazy. But obviously, there are people who are worse off than they were prior to the pandemic. And so Cash Gary is saying, hey, this all works out. Because it's fine that the government is borrowing all this money because we've got all these savings. And so that's why interest rates are still low, because the government is tapping in to this big supply of savings from all the people who are better off. And then we're using this windfall of savings, right, to spend money or give money to the people who are worse off. And so it's all like a virtuous circle that works out. And of course, this whole thing is laughable because- the public is not lending any money to the U.S. government. The average guy, right, who uh, is maybe has some more money in the bank than they had. They're not going out and buying any U.S. treasuries with that money. There, I mean, there's no way they wouldn't even consider buying U.S. treasuries. Now, is it possible that they put the money in a bank and the bank is using some of that money to buy U.S. treasuries? Maybe, but with the yields this low, it's really highly unlikely that you're getting a lot of banks that want to step up to the plate and buy these long-term treasuries. The reason long-term treasury yields are so low, it's got nothing to do with this glut of savings from the Americans who are better off from COVID. It's because the Federal Reserve is buying all those bonds. That's why uh, interest rates are so low. That's where the government is getting the money to to bail out everybody who's been hurt by COVID. They're not getting it from Americans who are flush with savings. They're getting it from the Federal Reserve that is just printing money and buying up the bonds. And of course, the other aspect that Kashgari completely ignores is the money has to be repaid. Maybe they are able to borrow money from these Americans who temporarily I had an increase in their savings because they can't travel and go out. Well, what happens when these Americans want to go back out and now they want to dip into those savings and start making up for lost time? Then what's the government going to do? Now, now, all the people that were supposedly lending the government money want their money back and the other people, well, you know, they still want to you know, keep spending. So what do you do then? How do you pay back the money? Even if you temporarily are able to borrow it, the problem isn't borrowing it. The problem is when you have to pay the loans back. But of course, Kashgari doesn't even consider paying the loans back because he knows the loans are never going to be paid back and he doesn't even care. He knows the government's just going to go perpetually into debt because the Federal Reserve is there to make that possible and to keep that Ponzi scheme going so that the government never has to deal with the debt. But what happens then is the. Foreign currency markets are going to have to deal with it. The dollar is going to have to deal with it. And anybody who owns US dollar denominated debt is going to have to deal with it. Also, on inflation, he was asked about whether he was worried there. And again, he said, no, he's not worried at all. I mean, he basically said inflation is a psychological phenomenon, right? You never, you know, so it's not. Uh, a monetary phenomenon in his mind, right? Inflation is all about psychology. It's got nothing to do with all the money the Fed is printing. It has to do with psychology, right? It's what people think. And and what he said is if people think inflation is coming, well, then they go and ask for a raise because they know they need more money because they expect higher inflation. And so he thinks it's expectations that are driving inflation. And he says, hey, you know, we don't see a lot of increasing inflation expectations And so because people don't expect inflation, well, we're not going to get it. You know, although in my mind, it's what people don't expect that ends up happening, right? It's expect the unexpected, like what happened with uh, GameStop. I don't think any of the shorts in GameStop expected what happened, but it happened anyway. And because what happened was so unexpected, it was such a big deal. So it's the unexpected inflation that is much worse than the inflation that you expect. Because at least if you expect inflation, you can prepare for it. And so maybe when you get it, it's not as bad because you factor it in to what you're doing. But when you get blindsided by higher inflation that you don't expect, that's when it's an even bigger problem. And of course, if cash carry is right and there isn't an increase in inflation expectations, then that is an even bigger problem than if there were. Although if you look at the bond market, clearly inflation expectations are on the rise. And the only reason rates aren't even higher is because the Fed, right, led by Kashgari and his buddies, no, not led by, he's not the chairman, but he's, you know, he's a big important voice there, Uh, but he's part of what's going on. And that's the reason that these rising inflation expectations haven't already fed into even higher bond yields than the ones we have today. But probably I think one of the more ridiculous comments too that he had, especially in light of the fact that he's not concerned about inflation. He was asked about uh, unemployment. And he talked about the real rate of unemployment being 10%, which is significantly higher than the official rate. So I agree with him there. In fact, I think their actual rate is is quite a bit higher than 10%. But he says he thinks it's 10%. And he thinks the actual unemployment rate today is on par with the highest the unemployment rate got to at the depths of the 08 financial crisis and the recession, uh, you know, that ensued. So he's saying that the unemployment rate now is as high as it was at the high point, I think, in in 2009. So we still have a big unemployment problem, which is one of the reasons that I guess he's not worried about inflation because he thinks you have this big pool of unemployed workers and he believes in the Phillips curve. But he started talking about the fact that a lot of companies are complaining that they can't find workers. And he doesn't understand how that's possible when there's 10% unemployment. And he thinks that it's really simple that if employers can't find workers, all they have to do is offer higher wages. And if they just offer higher wages, well, people will want to work because you have 10% unemployment. And so it's not that there aren't workers available. It's just that they don't want to work. But if you offer them higher money, well then they will want to work, right? Well first of all, given the fact that he's so sanguine about inflation, yet here he's advocating big increases in wages to, you know, induce a lot of the unemployed to get off the bench and come onto the playing field. I mean, wouldn't that in and of itself create an inflation problem because obviously if they're going to give their workers big raises to get to get employees, well Their production costs are going up. Their costs of doing business are going up. They're going to have to raise their end prices to their consumer in order to afford to pay uh, these higher wages. But of course, one of the reasons why they may not be willing to pay more for their workers is because it's not worth it. And maybe if they do pay more, they know that there's no way that they can recover those costs through price increases because the customers just won't shop or they just won't buy the product. And so it doesn't matter if they have the workers, if they don't have the end customer. But the other thing that he's overlooking is the workers have to be qualified for the jobs that the employers want. So just because you got some unemployed worker, I mean... If they can't do the job, if they don't have the skill set necessary, then just paying them more money is just going to be a bigger waste of money. So one of the reasons that a lot of these workers don't have jobs is that they don't have the skills that employers are looking for. But one of the biggest factors that a lot of people are unemployed now is because they would prefer to be unemployed. That is something that Kashgari is not even considering when he's advocating more stimulus and more extended unemployment benefits. We have made it very lucrative for people to be unemployed. For many people, it's more lucrative to stay unemployed than to go back to work. And it's certainly a lot more fun. So if it's more fun and more lucrative, why wouldn't you expect people to opt to do that? And so now in order to entice somebody to give up the cushy deal they have on extended unemployment benefits, employers have to pay a lot of money to get these workers back. But if they can't increase their prices high enough to cover the cost, well, then they just have to make do without those workers or they have to do other things. They have to automate or they have to outsource. In fact, I was talking to a guy today who is a partner in an outsourcing business and they've got a couple of thousand employees. I think these guys were in Colombia. I forget, it was a South American country. I think it was Colombia, but it could be a different country. But they got a couple thousand people down there and business is booming right now because a lot of US companies that can't find workers because the workers are staying at home right either because they they have covid or they just claim they're afraid of getting covid or whatever it is whatever excuses that they're allowed to come up with remember biden says now that even if your boss tries to get you to come back to work you don't have to and you can still get your unemployment benefits so a lot of these companies now that can't pay enough money to get unemployed americans to want to you know come to work uh they're outsourcing and so this guy's business is booming but he's really preparing now For just a complete explosion of business. And the reason he's telling me that they think that business is really going to boom is the $15 an hour minimum wage. I mean, they are salivating over this $15 minimum wage. They are going to make a fortune because they realize that the more expensive the U.S. government makes it, the higher Americans the more employers are going to refuse to hire Americans and are going to outsource instead and are going to hire his workers in Colombia to do the work that is now too expensive uh, to hire somebody local to do. That is what employers do, right? They have choices. You say you got to pay this person $15 minimum wage. And again, it's not just the $15. That's just the start. You have all kinds of payroll taxes, workings comp. There's a lot of other costs that the employee has to cover, that go way beyond his wages. Those costs have to be overcome to the employer. And now of course you're mandating family leave, sick leave, all of this stuff raises the cost. So maybe if the minimum wage is $15 an hour, maybe when you factor all this other nonsense in there, maybe the real cost of hiring an unskilled worker is $20 an hour. Well, what if they can outsource the job and 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 pay $13 or $14 an hour. That's what they're going to do. Maybe before the minimum wage increased, you know, it was a little bit more convenient or more economical to hire domestic. But once the minimum wage really jacked up from $725 to $15, all of a sudden, you know, outsourcing becomes economical. You know, because they're basically, as they're raising the minimum wage, they are lowering the threshold where outsourcing or automation becomes more economical because employers do a cost-benefit analysis. They say, well, for automation, we need to buy all this expensive equipment, computers or what other hardware we need to buy, software, how much is the upfront cost, what's that depreciation? And then they compare the cost of all that to the cost of continually paying workers. And whatever is cheaper that's where they want to go. You know, and one of the benefits of automating is, you know, you're not going to get sued for anything. You don't have to worry about, you know, discrimination laws or equal pay laws or any of that stuff. And that's the same thing with outsourcing. That's not your problem. When you outsource to a company in Colombia, you don't hire anybody. You're just paying another company. A fee. And that other company is dealing with their employees, but they don't have all these laws to contend with. They don't have all these regulations and all these laws that make it so easy uh, for them to get sued. So this is going to be a boom to companies that specialize in outsourcing, but it's a bust to American workers that are going to have their jobs outsourced thanks to the U.S. government. Thanks to Joe Biden, thanks to AOC and Bernie Sanders, right? If you want to know why your job disappears with a $15 an hour minimum wage, that's why. And the other irony of it all is as unemployment goes up because of the increase in minimum wage, the last thing the government's going to do is blaming on the increased minimum wage. They're just going to say, oh, there's more unemployed people here. Uh, We need more government programs. This just proves capital doesn't work. But of course, this feeds right into their game plan because when they make it illegal for people to work now people have no choice but to live off the government now they live welfare check to welfare check instead of paycheck to paycheck but now they're never going to bite the hand that feeds them in fact if anybody threatens to take away that food right they'll make sure to vote for the person who promises to keep feeding them. So these are voters, since it's the Democratic Party that is associated with more welfare and more food stamps and being friendlier to people who are permanently unemployed. Once the more people that the Democrats can render permanently unemployed, the more people they can guarantee will vote for them. And so that's one of the reasons they like raising the minimum wage law is because it increases the army of people who are legally prevented from having jobs. In fact, one of the other things that this guy told me about, I hadn't even thought about it, had to do with the state of New York. And apparently in New York, if you get COVID, the government, the state of New York will pay you $3,000 in tax-free money if you stay home for a month, right? Because you've got COVID. You get $3,000. And in addition, the worker continues to collect his paycheck from his employer During the month, he's at home recuperating from COVID and supposedly not subjecting anybody else to potentially catching it. So there's such a huge incentive now for people in New York to get infected with COVID that they have these COVID parties where they invite people with COVID and they invite other people and people go there deliberately trying to catch COVID so they can get a $3,000 check and a a one month paid vacation. And that, that might be one of the reasons that, you have a big increase in COVID cases in New York state is because New York government is paying people to get COVID, right? If you create an incentive for people to catch COVID, then you're going to have more people who catch COVID. And of course, the hospitals are also incentivized because the more people they diagnose with COVID, the more money they get. Uh, And so I think it's government in many ways that is driving the big increase in the number of cases that that we're seeing in COVID. But again, all these people that are taking a month off from work, uh, paid vacation with a $3,000 bonus, what do these companies do in the meantime if they actually need these workers? Well, they call up an outsourcing company like the guy I was talking to. And, and so more and more of this is going to happen. So these businesses are going to boom. But, you know, the other problem with the outsourcing, apart from all the unemployment that it creates and now the bigger welfare state that we have. And so instead of having Americans productive, they're just living off the government, living off the taxpayer. So we're going to have bigger deficits but we're going to have more money printing. We're going to have a worse balance of payments because now instead of paying American workers, they're in effect paying Colombian workers. Well, those Colombian workers don't want dollars, right? They, they want pesos. They got rent to pay. Their landlords want pesos, right? Everything they're spending is pesos. So all those dollars that we're using have to be converted to pesos in order to uh, pay these people. So that's more dollars On the global market being sold right we have bigger uh, current account deficit as we're sending these dollars abroad and then uh selling the dollars to buy pesos uh, and now there's more export dollars it's like a trade deficit in labor because we're importing uh work that we could do ourselves we have all these unemployed workers that the government is paying to stay at home and because they're being paid so much to stay at home we now have to import labor rather than using the domestic supply. And so the imbalance goes up and this is gonna drive uh, more downward pressure on the US dollar and of course, upward pressure on consumer prices here in the United States. wanna finish up the podcast by talking again about Bitcoin, which continues to be in the news. In fact, the Bitcoin was one of the prices that did not come down on Tuesday. And in fact, it's continuing to retrace a lot of what it lost. As I am recording this, we're back around 37,500. Remember, we got down to around 32,000, a little lower, 31 and change. And then Elon Musk tweeted a big rally. It pulled back. Then Elon came out again. You know, when the market looked like it was going to go back down again, we were down back around 32,33,000. And then Elon Musk, you know, on. Social media comes out and talks about how he's a big fan of Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is close to mainstream adoption and how he likes Bitcoin. And then he saves it again. And then Bitcoin has another big rally. And I think what's helping Bitcoin today is you think you had some comments coming out of Visa, which reported, I think, earnings today. Uh, But Visa came out, not much movement in the price of the stock, but apparently there were some comments uh, about Bitcoin. And the fact that they were looking at it and they don't necessarily see a reason why they couldn't incorporate Bitcoin into their network. And of course, that immediately was seen as bullish for Bitcoin. Oh, it's going to be now part of Visa network. That's not going to happen. I mean, there's, there's no way uh, that it's going to be part of Visa other than the fact that it is possible because they do have this now. They do have companies that store Bitcoin for you And you can have a Visa card attached to the program where you can liquidate your Bitcoin and then have that Bitcoin load your prepaid Visa card. So they have those type of relationships, which maybe they will expand. And there's no reason Visa would not want to expand into that because they just want as many people using their cards as possible. And if there are a lot of people that have Bitcoin and they want to make it easier for people to sell their Bitcoin to load their Visa card, then why wouldn't they want to do that? I mean, part of the problem I think they're going to come into is the enhanced KYC and AML that's going to go into vetting all that money coming out of crypto. So at the end of the day, they may think that it's not worth the extra regulatory cost. Of course, what a lot of these companies do that tie a Visa or a MasterCard To a crypto wallet or related account is they allow the holder of the card to pledge their Bitcoin as collateral. So they're really secured credit cards secured by the value of the Bitcoin. And then when people use their credit cards, they're actually borrowing money. And so the company is loaning them the dollars because that's what they're spending. That's what the merchants accept, not Bitcoin. So they're able to use their credit card and the credit is a loan that's secured by the Bitcoin that they have. So it's not uh, an unsecured credit card like a lot of people would have there's a security there, except the problem is Bitcoin can crash at any minute. I mean, it's not really great security. And what's happening is a lot of these hodlers that don't wanna sell their Bitcoin because you know they're gonna become multimillionaires or whatever uh, on their Bitcoin. So they don't wanna sell them, but they may actually wanna buy something. And so what they do is they put up their Bitcoin as collateral And then they borrow money and they know that the Bitcoin is going to go way up and they figure, well, one day in the future when Bitcoin is like a million dollars a coin, well, maybe I'll finally sell off a fraction of a coin and pay off what I owe. And, And so this allows people who have Bitcoin to not actually sell. This is helping to fuel the Bitcoin bubble because it's enabled people to own Bitcoin to turn that Bitcoin into buying power because they're able to use it as collateral for a loan. The problem is it's not very good collateral because the price can crash at any minute. And in fact, if we do get a big crypto crash, what a lot of these companies are gonna to have to do is force liquidate the security behind that secured credit card And that is going to add fuel to the collapse because it's like a lot of margin call related selling when these companies that have issued Visa and MasterCards backed by Bitcoin, when the value of that Bitcoin falls enough to trigger margin related selling, now you just fuel the decline and that just makes the crash that much worse. And then of course, these companies, these companies that have issued these credit cards If the Bitcoin collapses so quickly that they can't collect enough money to recover what they've loaned, now they have huge losses because there's no way that they're going to collect from the credit card customers. They're not going to get any money from the people once the collateral is exhausted. So that means a lot of these companies are actually going to go bankrupt once Bitcoin crashes. So their liquidation of these, the security will help accelerate the crash of Bitcoin at which will accelerate their own bankruptcy as they can't raise enough money to cover all the loans that they've put out there to finance all the spending on the part of the Bitcoin hodlers uh, who didn't want to sell their Bitcoin, but who still wanted to buy stuff. But I think right now, I mean, maybe these may be making these comments because they think it'll help their stock. Because the minute you start talking now about the fact that you may incorporate Bitcoin in some way into your stock, then you have a lot of investors that might buy your stock just because they now think it's a Bitcoin play, just like MicroStrategy. But of course, MicroStrategy actually owns a bunch of Bitcoin. So it's almost like a Bitcoin ETF at this point. So I don't think Visa would do anything like that. But they are certainly talking about maybe having Bitcoin play some kind of role Uh, in their company in the future if it does it will be de minimis and of course once bitcoin crashes it'll be a non-event but in the meantime maybe they can get some treat publicity and get some people buying the stock if they think somehow it's tied into bitcoin MicroStrategy is, by the way up eight percent today a new record high for the stock 753 dollars a share the 52-week low is 90 bucks uh, so MicroStrategy certainly riding the uh, Bitcoin wave. You know, Michael Saylor, he just started this. I think it's a three-day Bitcoin for Corporations virtual conference in which he's trying to con other CEOs into copying what he did. He's going to share his playbook. I mean, what, I mean, why do you need to share it? I mean, just buy Bitcoin. I mean, what's so secret about that? It's not like he's got a secret formula for buying Bitcoin. I mean, it's not hard to do, right? But apparently, he's trying to con other people. into into using what will be a a, a game-losing playbook. You know, to the extent that he is successful in convincing U.S. corporations to actually load their balance sheets up with Bitcoin, this is going to be just another big problem for corporations. And if any corporations are dumb enough to follow his lead, uh, people who own those stocks should sell them because they're not going to have the big pump uh, that uh, you got from uh, MicroStrategy. And by the way, you know, I don't even know why Saylor is still the CEO of MicroStrategy. I mean, I don't even think he spends any time on software. I mean, all he talks about is Bitcoin. All he's doing is Bitcoin. He ought to step aside and let somebody who actually cares about running the business run the business if he just wants to be a spokesman uh, to tout Bitcoin all the time. Though another interesting observation that I kind of have about Bitcoin is, you know, as I'm watching uh, CNBC today. And of course, they have their obligatory Bitcoin pumpers coming on, which they do every day. And they manage to ask every CEO just about when they're interviewing them. They always slip in a question about Bitcoin. You know, it's like it's it's like a, a must ask question. And again, they're doing this, I think, at the behest of Grayscale, who is their biggest advertiser. So they have to make them happy by keeping Bitcoin constantly in the news Because they have to keep the money flowing because it comes back to uh, CNBC in the form of ad dollars. But what is interesting is that the only people who come on CNBC and who talk about the risk of the big deficits, the out-of-control federal spending, the money printing, QE infinity, 0% interest rates, hyperinflation, the only people that talk about these problems are the people who are touting Bitcoin. In fact, if they didn't have the Bitcoin pumpers on CNBC, nobody on CNBC would be talking about this. You see, they don't invite people who, like me, right, who are advocating, you know, getting into gold and silver or getting into foreign stocks as a uh, way to protect yourself, or even people that aren't even advocating protecting yourself, just people that would talk about the risks inherent in what we're doing, right? You don't have these so-called gloom and doomers, uh, perma bears, the way they like to call them. They're not on CNBC unless they're touting Bitcoin. I mean, if you're going to tout Bitcoin, they will roll out the red carpet and they will let you say all the gloom and doom, bearish things that you want, and they'll never say boo to you. They, 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 They won't argue with you. They won't try to say that you're wrong, but at least the Bitcoin guys are talking about this stuff. Because if it wasn't for the Bitcoin guys, nobody would be talking about it. So I'm glad that at least somebody is coming on CNBC letting people know that there's a problem, that we're playing with fire, that the Fed is inflating bubbles and undermining the economy, and that we're headed for a currency crisis. So at least the Bitcoin people are coming on and saying this. The problem is they're advocating that people buy Bitcoin. And so anybody who does is probably going to end up losing even more money than the people who dismiss what they're saying and don't even take any action to protect themselves from inflation or the Fed. That is the irony. It's the people who get it, who actually understand that there's a risk, and they just go uh, for the wrong safe haven. You know, they, they end up jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. What people have to understand is that these Bitcoin advocates who are talking about these risks they're right but they're only talking about it in a self-serving way to try to tout bitcoin as the alternative and at the same time they're doing that they'll always going to diminish gold they're going to try to talk anybody out of gold by saying it's worthless it has no uses it's just a stupid shiny yellow rock and in fact you know i don't know which things are dumber right what bitcoin uh bugs say about Bitcoin that is ridiculous or all the ridiculous things that they say about gold. Because as they are touting Bitcoin and trying to get people to buy Bitcoin, they also have to convince people not to buy gold, right? Because they talk about all the inflation that's out there and a currency crisis and hyperinflation. And a lot of people might think, oh, wow, maybe I should buy some gold. They don't want you to do that. No, 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 don't do that right? Gold's nothing. It's just a worthless, shiny rock. Why would you want that? I mean, you can't do anything with gold. Buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin has all the value. Bitcoin is way better than gold, right? That's what they're trying to do. Now, there are some people out there that buy Bitcoin and buy gold, and they think they see the value in both. But the main Bitcoin pumpers have to completely trash gold because they're trying to take gold's market share And they're trying to get Bitcoin. So they see gold as a big competitor to Bitcoin and they're trying to keep people out of it. That's why the Grayscale commercial is all about drop gold. And that's the one that's constantly running, you know, on a continuous loop almost on CNBC. Sell your gold, sell your gold, sell your gold. Because the main person who is likely to fall for the Bitcoin sales pitch right? And the sales pitch is a good sales pitch when it comes to the real risks inherent in the current fiat-based monetary system. They know their best customer is somebody who already owns gold because that person already believes this. So they're speaking their language. See, the people that don't own gold, people that think everything is great and you're telling them the world's coming to an end, there's going to be inflation, so you should buy Bitcoin. They're like, no, why should I do that? Right? They, they don't believe in it. So they're not the best market. I mean, yes, you can convince some people to buy it just because it's going way up and you convince them that it's going up, but they're not going to buy it because they're worried about hyperinflation or Armageddon. These are just speculative investors that might buy it because it's going up and they want to come along for the ride. But if you're trying to appeal to people who actually get it, right, people like me, right, who actually Understand the real risks and want to protect themselves. That's the minority of people, right? The vast majority of people are clueless about these risks, and that's why they don't own any gold or silver. But the people who do own gold and silver, who understand these risks, that is the market for Bitcoin. That is really who uh, the Bitcoin proponents are trying to convince uh, to buy, because they already believe the narrative. They just want them to to change horses uh, from gold. Or silver to Bitcoin. And what they point out is, oh, look, look how much uh, Bitcoin has gone up in the last five years or 10 years and compare that to gold. And again, the fact that Bitcoin has gone up so much more than gold has nothing to do with the fundamentals. I mean, you can make the same argument about stocks, about Tesla. I've said, hey, look at how much Tesla has gone up. So why don't you sell your gold and buy Tesla? You know, because Bitcoin's got more in common with Tesla probably than it does with gold, although it doesn't have that much in common with Tesla either, other than the fact that it's in a bubble. But Tesla is at least a real business and Bitcoin is nothing.